there are some Bible stories that uh, make all of the children's storybook Bibles. Okay, so if you have a kid's Bible, it's probably going to have Noah and the ark. And there's other ones that you know that are going to be in there. And I know they have to pick and choose. There are other ones that I would say uh, you're hard-pressed to find them in a kid's storybook Bible. And today is going to be one of those stories. And if you don't know what's coming, you're going to see why in just a little bit. Uh, anyone remember flannel graph back in the day for Sunday school? You have these, you know, flannel boards and you put like the flannel picture of here's Abraham and you kind of walk him across and you have different scenes and characters. Uh, there probably aren't many, probably, hopefully not any, <laughs> uh, flannel graph presentations for this uh, story for kids. <laughs> uh, and you're going to see why. Uh, so... It's easy, again, it'd be easy to just do the, the highlights of Genesis. But this account is in the Bible for a reason. And of course, Noah lived a long time. I mean, he was 600 years when he went on the ark. Uh, they lived longer after this point, it tapers down. And I'm sure there's a lot of things uh, that happen in his life. And we have to ask, why is this one recorded in Scripture? And even if we read this, you say, I wish this wasn't recorded in Scripture. I didn't want this in my head. Uh, there's a, there are reasons why this is in. That's what we have to ask ourselves. So here we go, reading Genesis 9, starting with verse 18. We'll do it in two parts. We'll summarize the first part, that after the flood, so this is after Noah's Ark, after God uh, judges uh, humanity by wiping out all of them except for eight of them Noah and his wife Noah's three sons and their wives and some of the animals that they saved they get off the ark God makes his covenant with them gives the rainbow as the the sign of the covenant but then this also happens so see after the flood Noah sinned and brought himself shame all right so we read here verse 18 the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And these three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So Noah and his wife had three sons, and from them and their wives, so they repopulate humanity eventually. Uh, one of Ham's sons, his youngest son, is, is Canaan. We're going to see that he comes up again in this story. And in verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Okay, so he starts farming again. They plant a vineyard. They get some grapes uh, to do this. And then verse 21, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. All right, so we're going to pause right there and to talk about what happened here with Noah and uh, to realize what's going on. You say, wait a second, this sounds like Noah. What are you doing there, Noah? Uh, yeah. Now, we have to realize this happened, I think, a, a good while after the, the flood account because there was time enough for him to plant a vineyard, for the, the crops to grow, uh, for him to have enough grapes and make wine. And also, at this point, you see some grandkids that have come along. Uh, so it's probably based on the number of grandkids and Canaan being the youngest, that there's uh, a number of years have passed. We don't know exactly how many, uh, but it's sometime after uh, Noah and his family, they get off the ark. 
but then looking at the story and just seeing what happens is that he plants this vineyard, he harvests the grapes, he makes, uh, he makes wine, and he gets into it a little bit, quite a bit too much. And basically, to be blunt, what we have here, as embarrassing as this is, is uh, drunk Noah passed out in his tent naked. So as much as you didn't want that in your head, especially realizing he's over 600 years old, uh, <laughs> there, that's where our story is here today. And I get to preach this to you. Uh, but there are, again, reasons why God has included this historical account uh, in Scripture. So he passes out, and we're going to see in the second part of this uh, that his, one of his sons, Ham, comes and discovers him and uh, ends up embarrassing his father, tells his, his brothers about this, and we're going to see how they respond. Uh, so not only does this get discovered by his sons, uh, but now it's, it's written for us and for everyone to read about uh, through the end of time in God's uh, unchanging, uh, lasting word. And uh, Noah gets to deal with this uh, because of uh, we, what he did. Now, we don't know, was this something that was a habitual thing? Was this a one-time thing that happened? Uh, and uh, he just didn't know what the, the effects were going to be, but, but this is what happens. So, before we move on, I think there's at least, I got three things I want to uh, talk about for like application for this kind of section here. And I think a few of these are, well, just obvious things that we need to deal with because it's in the passage. So the first statement I'm going to give you has to do with this drunkenness. And I'll say it like this, that, that alcohol alone is not sinful, but it is easy to abuse. And that drunkenness is a sin. And so even in Scripture, there's a lot more Scripture that's going to come after this. This is going to make this very clear. But this is definitely something that is not presented in a good light for Noah. This is not something that's presented like, great decision, Noah. Uh, this is something that's presented that, oh, no, what, what have you done? And what has this led to? So, again, I think um, to be balanced on this issue, alcohol in and of itself uh, is not uh, necessarily sinful. And uh, as much as I would want to just encourage you just to, to not drink, uh, there is an area of Christian liberty that is here. In the scriptures, in the Old Testament, they did drink wine. There are reasons for that. Uh, it was a common drink. It was probably uh, more healthy because the alcohol would kill some of the, the bacteria. In the New Testament, they drank wine as well, too. We're going to be celebrating communion today. Uh, it's going to be with Welch's grape juice, okay? So you don't have to worry about overdoing it and passing out in church here. Uh, but uh, when Jesus gave the Lord's Supper in the cup, it was, there was wine in it. Now, people will point out, yeah, but uh, the wine back in those days wasn't as alcoholic. And most of them, that was probably true, that they would dilute it you know, quite a bit. But as we see from the story here with Noah, and we see from other warnings in Scripture, you could still, if you had too much of it or too much of the right stuff, uh, you could still get yourself in this state. And so, one hand, um, I, partly an area of Christian liberty, there needs to be wisdom that is applied. A year ago, we did the book of Proverbs. It talks about wisdom. Uh, and in there, did a message on, uh, there's a lot of in, passages in the book of Proverbs on alcohol, on drunkenness, 
Uh, one of those, Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And so even if this is an area of Christian uh, you know, liberty that you're thinking about, you've got to be aware of all the warning passages and how easy it is to abuse this. Think of all the lives that have um, gone the wrong way for them, for family members, uh, because uh, it was taken too far. And so I would encourage you, look up that message from last year in the Proverbs series. It's called God's Wisdom on Staying Sober, and especially if this is something that is of concern to you. And it's not just about getting drunk. Uh, there's the impact that it has on other people. There's the fact that this, it, it does decrease your decision-making ability. That's why sometimes you get worried when people say, well, I know what I, what I can handle, I'll make good decisions. Um, but be aware, you're taking something in that is also into your body that is, one of its effects is that you are less likely to make good decisions. And then think that you can uh, get up to the edge and then stop, uh, that's why it is a, can be a dangerous thing. Um, so, well, I want to think of this with, with Noah. Um, you know, he was a pretty um, godly guy. The world gets destroyed, okay, except for Noah, his wife, and his uh, three kids and their, and their wives. And it talks about Noah being a righteous guy. But if he can slide into this, it should be a warning to us of how easy this can be, how easy he can be caught off guard with this. And so just caution, caution, caution. Also, I do want to point out that drunkenness is a sin. Uh, so that is no longer an area of Christian liberty at all. Uh, getting hammered, getting uh, inebriated like this is not something that God wants you to do because God wants you to be in control of yourself, to have self-control and even more to be controlled by the Holy Spirit and not to be controlled or filled by whether it's alcohol or you think of all the things today, uh, the different drugs and yeah, marijuana is illegal. I believe God doesn't want you to be controlled by that either and losing your, your, your faculties uh, to that, um, which the only reason that you would smoke marijuana or take that in uh, is to have that effect. Um, so Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. That means it, just, it falls into all kinds of wild, bad consequences. But it says, but be filled with the Spirit. Romans 13, 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. You know, it lists drunkenness there with some of these other sins. And a lot of times, one, sometimes they, they go together and amplify each other. Uh, so there are definitely warnings uh, to this that we need to really be aware of. So I think that's one of the things we have to realize. I think it's at least one of the applications that we do get here from this account. Uh, we see this having uh, lasting embarrassing consequences for Noah, and we're going to see uh, runoff for his, his family as well. Drunkenness, yeah, all this um, easily leads to indiscretions, shame, and lots of other negative consequences. And we could list those and if you've gone through enough life, uh, you've been able to look around and, and see maybe firsthand a lot of those consequences. And maybe they've affected you. And if this is an area of struggle in your life, uh, I hope that with God's help, you're able to, to be battling against this. And I know it is, is a difficult thing. 
And my point here would not be to shame you, but to, to help you to, uh, to, to fight the good fight uh, because God wants you to have a, a sober and a clear head. So we see the theme of alcohol. And we look into this, uh, this passage too, and I think we also have to realize there's a theme here also, and this is, these are awkward things to be talking about, uh, but if, if Noah being naked in the tent, and as we've been going through Genesis, we've seen that nakedness is also a theme uh, that has been in the book of Genesis quite a bit. Remember Adam and Eve, when they were created originally, uh, in chapter 2, it ends by saying that they uh, were, it was just the two of them, they were, they were married, it was before sin was in the world, and it says that they were naked and not ashamed. And it was a different world before the fall, and again, it was just the two of them. Uh, but once they sinned against God and they rebelled, the world changed, and humanity changed. And then they, they all of a sudden were embarrassed, they realized their nakedness, and I think it wasn't just the, the physical nakedness, but they realized that they lost the innocence that they had, that they were created with. You know, God created them and, and said, very good. It doesn't mean they were perfect in the sense that they could never sin. They did, uh, but they were in a state of innocence. But after sin, they are not in that state of innocence anymore. They are in a state of sinfulness. And we all come into this world as descendants of Adam in that state of sinfulness as our default setting of our hearts. And so they realized they were naked. They tried to hide from God. That's how they tried to deal with their, their, their shame, their guilt, their sense of shame, their feelings of that as well. And God had to draw them out. And he didn't tell them, hey, it's okay the way you are. He, instead, he covered their shame. And remember, he gave them skins of animals. And that probably points ahead to, I think animals had to die for this. And it points ahead to that there has to be sacrifice made to cover sin. And in the Old Testament, you have the Old Testament sacrifices. But all of those things ultimately point ahead to the one that can actually deal with sin. The one that actually takes it away. Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, uh, the fulfillment of that, who takes away the sins of the world. So you see this, this uh, theme of, of nakedness and being clothed uh, in the book of Genesis. And so on one hand, you have Adam, the original human, and now we see uh, Noah. And it's kind of like, well, is humanity going to have a fresh start? How are they going to do after this? But now we see Noah, he's, he's sinning, and now he is in a state of embarrassment. And his nakedness here is not presented as a good thing. This is not presented as uh, something healthy, you know, the things people talk today, you know, healthy body positivity. And this is presented as a, um, this is a negative thing. This is something that uh, was viewed as shameful for him to be in this position. And many things we could say about nakedness, um, indecent exposure is, is shameful. They're not supposed to be like that. That's why we have to teach our kids, hey, you got to put clothes on when they're little babies and stuff. Um, I remember one of my kids, and I uh, won't mention his name to uh, not embarrass him, uh, but uh, <laughs> we used to have to sometimes declare naked baby alert, and <laughs> somebody get him and get that boy some clothes. Uh, little you know, one-year-old running around. You have to teach him that this isn't the way that we are supposed to be. Um, I remember when I was in college, 
I, for a year, I taught a, uh, in inner city Chicago, I taught a uh, midweek uh, Bible study with uh, some middle school uh, students at the time in the city. And we were, had this curriculum that was basically starting them from scratch. So going through the, the, uh, the Bible story from, from beginning to end, assuming you know, nothing, because it's the first time they were hearing it. And so I'm teaching this, this small group of guys, and we're talking about Genesis, and I'm talking about you know, Adam and Eve and creation and sin coming into the world. And it got to the part Remember, middle school boys. Uh, we talked about uh, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And I was about to move on, and they lost it. Okay? And they're like, oh, that would be so awesome. That would be so great. And I was oh, man, I've lost these guys. Their minds are in a different place. i gotta, I got to reel them in and calm them down a little bit. I said, yeah, okay, yeah. I realize most people you actually don't want to see naked. Okay? And I listed a few examples. And it quickly threw a bucket of cold water on them and said, yeah, clothes are a really good idea. Um, <laughs> and the truth is, most people you wouldn't want to see, and the ones that you do want to, you, you shouldn't. Unless you happen to be married to that person or something, you know, uh, married to that person or uh, I, you're a doctor or something like that. <laughs> Even then, you just have to. But you know what, you know what I'm getting at. Uh, there's, a, there's a place for things. Well, the message here is not that the human body is gross or disgusting or sinful in itself, but there's a time and a place. There's an appropriateness. And in the same way that sexual relations are designed by God for a husband and a wife that are married to each other, and that's the appropriateness, there's certain places where the exposure of the human body is, is, is good and fine, uh, but most of it, nope. It's, clothing is, is a good thing. But you know, you probably noticed this, our society has some weird views about nakedness. Um, and as we, we push away from God, as we push away from, from his norms, I think all these things are really connected. Uh, these, these different views, pe- people trying to, um, you know, it's not even just like, you know, movie stars, you know, getting paid big bucks to be inappropriate on a, uh, in a movie or these days a TV show, although there's still way too much of that. But you have um, everything from, you know, people to these days on some of these crazy reality shows. It's like, what are you doing? You want to just uh, put that out there for, for everyone to see and you don't have shame, you're not embarrassed by this? Or even people just uh, going around in society and, you know, not, maybe not completely, but it's like, you got to cover up a little more. Modesty is a good thing, not... Just because you have it doesn't mean that you should flaunt it. Um, the human body uh, is not shameful, but inappropriate nakedness uh, is. And in society, sometimes you see messages today where they say to, to tell people, especially ladies, to flaunt you know, your body as empowerment or to flaunt your nakedness. I wonder, who's actually saying that? That sounds like a trick by perverts, if you ask me. Uh, but... Um, Modesty is a, is a positive thing. Your body is not meant for everyone to see. And today, people try to overcome, well, I think the way that people try to sometimes take what should be hidden and they flaunt it is kind of way, their way of dealing with something that maybe they're trying to overcome their sense of shame. Saying, I, I, I don't feel shameful about this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flaunt it and pretend to be proud about, pride, pr- be proud about this. 
And I think that not only happens with um, this specific issue, but with shame and guilt in general. I think there's so many different ways that people in this world take, they have these feelings of shame, that they have feelings of guilt, and not just uh, feelings of shame and guilt that are inappropriate or misplaced, but real shame. Uh, there's things that we are not right about, and there's reasons why you f- we feel guilty. If you're guilty and you feel guilty, that makes sense. But the way that so many people deal with this or are told to deal with it is, no, you have to be proud of your sin. You know, be proud of your shame. And you, you put it out there and you advertise this and you make this a, a badge of honor instead. And people do this with all kinds of different sins and not just the, the few that come to mind right away, but a lot of different things. This is so much different than the Bible's message about dealing with shame and guilt. That it isn't uh, put it out there and pretend it's something to be, to be proud of and try to get everyone else to pretend that these are great things. Uh, there are certain things that are, that are wrong. And the message isn't to, that we want everyone to be shamed, but to let you know that God has done something to not just uh, promote your shame, but to cover your shame. And in Jesus, not even just to cover it, but to take it away. That Jesus Christ went to the cross uh, to, to take away our shame and guilt. But our society tries to deal with shame and sin by flaunting it instead of covering it. The last thing I want to, before we move on, again, we read this story about Noah, and we read this and you're like, I'm disappointed in Noah. And I didn't want to know this. I was, we want to be able to lift up Noah. We want to be able to lift up these Old Testament heroes as our role models, as our examples. We need some people to look to and say, this person had it together. They had it right. And we don't want our, our heroes tarnished like this. But here's the message we get from Noah. And you're going to, as we keep reading the Bible, you're going to keep seeing this time and time again, is that all of the heroes of the Bible are flawed. Every one of them, if there's enough verses in Scripture that are written about them, they all have issues. We're going to see it with David. We're going to see it with Abraham. We're going to see it uh, with Peter. If you've got enough verses, these heroes are flawed except for one. And there's only one that we're going to see in Scripture that is perfect all the way through. And if Jesus had not been perfect, if he was yet another sinner, uh, then we would not have a Savior. But the reason that you can be saved is because Jesus was perfect all the way through from beginning to end. Tempted, but he did not sin. And yeah, Jesus was the the God-man. But if he had sinned, if that could be possible for God, and it sent for him as God, it isn't possible for him as a human, uh, theoretically, if he had wanted to, but he never wanted to because uh, he was a perfect God. But if he had sinned, our, your chance of salvation would be zero. Your chance of going to hell would be 100% because there's no other Savior. There's no other way. And if he was tarnished, well, if the lifeguard drowns, then you're drowning too. But praise God, Jesus was perfect. But everyone else is a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not even one, Romans 3 tells us. And that means me, and that means you. And that means 
that I need a Savior. That means that you need a Savior. You can't save yourself because you've already blown it. You came into this world with the default setting of rebellion against God, same as I did. We sin because we're sinners, and there's no amount of turning over a new leaf now that is gonna take, that's going to change the past, even if you could, and you're not going to. There had to be a different way. So we are sinners, and we need a perfect Savior. This also means, I think this is, a, this is a really important lesson. People will always let you down. And I'm not saying, you know, don't have any relationships or have, I'm, some people have a weird distrust that's, that's too far. It's good to have people, it's good to have role models, but don't put someone on the high pedestal that only God belongs on. Because if you put a mere mortal on that type of pedestal, one day you are going to be disappointed. There's a time when kids grow up and they find out things about their parents and they realize, oh, my parents are sinners. Uh, or they find out things in the past or they realize, well, hey, wait a second, dad shouldn't have lost his temper like that. I guess he's a sinner too. Uh, there's things, uh, role models, there's, uh, and I'm not just talking about, you know, the fake Christians that are out there. You know, the celebrity pastors that, you know, shipwreck their faith and who knows if they were just charlatans from the beginning. Some of these good, solid people that fall into different uh, sins or have different issues that they're working on. Um, don't put them on the pedestal that only God belongs on. It's good to have good role models, but realize the example that we give for each other is of people that we're trying to repent of our sins that we're constantly looking at our heart to see what we can, um, what needs to be changed. I guess I think about this, uh, if, if I'm, okay, you're a parent, you're a role model to your kids. Uh, I guess the one thing that I can be a role model to, to my kids in a way that Jesus can't is I can show them how to repent. Jesus never had to. I mean, he got baptized, he went through the, the motions on his behalf, but he never sinned. Uh, but we can help people see what happens when, it, when a Christian realizes some sin in their life. And then we acknowledge it, and uh, we don't try to justify it. We take it to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. We confess and we, we repent. And with his strength, we try to, to battle against that and repeat as needed. People always let you down. Don't put them on too high of a pedestal. Don't think that anyone is so godly in this life that they don't have their faults. So we should be realistic with one another too. We're all still in process. God's not finished with us. Think again, Noah, okay? Think of his, his life. This was a godly man, uh, but then he had this episode that he had. And we should take this as a warning. If something this or something like this can happen to Noah, then are we so godly? Are you so godly that you... Uh, couldn't fall into something as well. Noah could. Noah, the, the, who's listed in the Hall of Faith, he's a hero of the Bible, he fell into something, but if we think, well, I could never fall into sin. Remember, poor pride, pride comes before the fall. And take heed that you think you stand and then you end up falling. 
don't think that you are incapable of some sins. And maybe it's this sin, maybe it's that sin, um, but you can get blindsided. I think Noah was blindsided. I think he thought this wouldn't happen, but he let it happen. All right, so we're going to move on to the second half of the story here. And we're going to see that Noah's sons responded differently to their father's situation. Let's read verses 22 through 29. So Noah's there, uh, sprawled out in his all together in his shame. And it says, verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. So he must have came in, hey, Dad, can I, whoa. And he sees this. And, but look at what his reaction is. Uh, does he just kind of, you know, back out? I didn't see this. Uh, but it says, and he told his two brothers outside. And you have to think, why did he tell him? Or in what way did he tell them? And as we read this, I think we can read between the lines. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, they laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. So I think Ham comes out and he tells them, and I think he's probably, you know, just giddy. He's slapping, laughing. Yeah, dad here, you know, righteous Noah was telling us what to do and to be so godly. He's in there. You should see the condition he's in. The, the hypocrite. Look at this fool and look at him and what he's gotten himself into. Embarrassment. And it's, you know, point and laugh, that type of thing. Mocking his dad. That's, I think, reading between the lines what's going on here. But then the two others, you know, he, I think he expected them to join in, have a great laugh, you know, at their father's expense. But instead, they, they take uh, a garment, a blanket or something, and they purposely, they walk backwards uh, into the tent so that they're not seeing their dad and so they drape it over him and they cover uh, his nakedness in that way. Verse 24, When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Let's say three things about this second part. First, as we saw, Ham saw Noah's situation and dishonored him. I think it wasn't just a matter that he, he saw him, but it's how he reacted and what he did afterwards. Some have suggested that maybe Ham's sin here was, was uh, some kind of sexual perversion. Um, sometimes in the Old Testament, uh, there are places where it uses the phrase to uncover somebody's nakedness as a euphemism for sexual relations. And we see that in the book of Leviticus. This is worded differently here in Genesis and so I don't think there's really uh, an indication that that's what was going on, some kind of perversion, maybe, but it's not explicit. I think probably rather his sin was that he used this discovery to, to mock and embarrass his father. So at least that is what's going on. 
And I think that's why he went out to, to tell his, his brothers uh, this when he could have just even not mentioned it or um, obviously he wasn't the one to say, okay, let's you know, just go in with the garment and back up and not look and, and, and cover dad up here. We also see here, it talks about that the descendants of Ham's son Canaan were prophetically cursed. We have to talk about what is, what is that? What does it mean? Because when Noah gets up, uh, somehow he discovers what had happened and we don't know exactly how that worked. Uh, hey, how did this uh, you know, blanket you know, get on me? This is mine. Or was it a matter that you know, he overheard other chit-chat? I, I don't think it was probably his um, uh, Shem and Japheth. I think they probably uh, wouldn't have mentioned it. Um, maybe it's that Ham's son Canaan you know, Ham told his son, and maybe he's spreading it around. Uh, who knows? It's hard to say. Some speculate that this other guy, because notice the curse is on this guy, Canaan, who's Ham's son, and not necessarily right directly on Ham himself. So we have to read between the lines a little bit, but it's unclear exactly what uh, has happened. But there's a prophetic curse that is given uh, that goes to Canaan. And maybe it could be already that um, Noah already saw that Canaan was going down the path of his father. Um, maybe the, the Lord knew that too and allowed this curse to happen. It, oftentimes it is true that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, that the descendants pick up on the same sins you know, as, as the parents. Now sometimes it doesn't. And by God's grace, sometimes people go a different route. God intervenes in lives. And never think that you have to go down the same road as the examples that you've been, that you've been shown. Uh, but just left to our own, that, that tends to be what happens. And that one generation follows the sins of the, the other. But I think this is something that is prophetic and that it wasn't just something that Noah said, but that God knew what the Canaanites would be like. One commentator, Alan Ross, writes, to the Hebrew mind, the Canaanites were the most because Canaan would be the father of uh, the Canaanites later on. And those are the ones, both in, in, in Genesis and afterwards, that they're in the land that's called Canaan, which is the land of Israel, uh, that uh, after the time of the Exodus, they have to come and they, they conquer. God gives that land to them, because the Canaanites are wicked, wicked people. And God says, you drive them out of this land. Ross writes, to the Hebrew mind, the Canaanites were the most natural embodiments of Ham. Everything the Canaanites did in their pagan existence was symbolized by the attitude of Ham. From the moment the patriarchs entered the land, these tribes were there with their corrupting influence. Before we move on, I also want to say, there have been some people that have pointed to this as a justification for slavery. And because it talks about that uh, that Canaan would be the servant of, of Shem and uh, the Shem's descendants uh, included Israel. Um, but that is not what this passage is about. That doesn't even make sense. The Can and especially to justify the slavery that happened in America. Because, uh, the, the, well, first of all, it's not what is said here at all. And also it doesn't even work ethnically. The Canaanites uh, were, were not... Uh, black people. And so to justify it like that, to say that, oh, the color of your skin uh, at one time meant that you could be a slave, 
uh, to try to justify the scripture is twisting things and taking things way out of context. And that was a, a sinful and racist interpretation of this passage. Uh, twisting scripture to the way that people wanted to use that. Uh, but there's nothing to it in scripture. So Ham, and I think with his sons, they respond in this bad way. Uh, but Shem and Japheth, they respond differently. And they are blessed for seeking to respect their father, to honor him, despite his indiscretion, despite the condition that he found, they found him in. You know, later on, when the, the Ten Commandments are given, the Fifth Commandment is honor your father and your mother. And this, is, this made the, the Ten Commandments. And so we even, early on, we see here that this is, this is an expectation uh, when God gave the Ten Commandments here, he was uh, writing down something that was part of his, his moral character, his moral law from the beginning. That we're to honor our parents and not seek to shame them, not seek to embarrass them. And this also means even times when they don't necessarily deserve it. There are times that we do realize uh, things about our, our parents' lives. Or maybe you have parents that they're hard to honor, they're, they're hard to, to respect. And that doesn't mean excusing everything that's done, but it does show that uh, to honor our, our mothers and our fathers is not something that is just based on do they deserve it. Now, for those of us that are mothers and fathers, let's try to make it easy for our kids, okay? But it is something that we're called to do regardless because they have that position in our lives. I remember years ago, and this is at another church, um, and there was an early social media uh, platform called Zanga, and there were teens writing on it, and I think they didn't realize that these were public things. And I just remember reading uh, this girl talking about um, her dad being like Paso drunk and making fun of him, and it, it broke my heart to hear about the dynamics going on in this household, but it also just uh, saddened me to Think of this, uh, this young person just also then mocking you know, her father publicly in this way. I think there's another application we can draw from this too. Do we want to be people that seek to shame people or to help cover their shame? And that doesn't mean excusing guilt. It doesn't mean pretending that everything is just right. Uh, but we as Christians don't want to be, our, our, our job, we don't want to, to, to shame people. It's not a matter of saying, well, I'm perfect. I got it together and you don't and look at this and let's embarrass you and make you feel shame. The only reason we want people to recognize guilt is that it would drive them to the one that can cover their shame. And in Jesus, not, just, not even just cover it, but, but take their, their sin and their shame away. And so, yeah, we talk about sin. We talk about guilt. But the purpose is to help you to find Jesus, the one that can, that can deal with that and that can take away these things. You know, when Jesus went to the cross, he probably wasn't wearing anything. And I hate to put that in your mind, too. Um, I know when you see pictures or whatever, Thankfully, they put a little loincloth. But the way that the Romans crucified people, uh, it was meant to humiliate and to shame them. So not only was Jesus taking your guilt 
for, for believers, for anyone that will turn to him on the cross, he was, he was taking your shame as well. And so you, we have feelings of shame. We have feelings of guilt. But the way to deal with that is not to pretend that these things are just okay and let's, let's, let's flaunt it or, or deny it, but it's to give it to the one that has already taken them on the cross, that has already dealt with them. And when Jesus returns, it's not going to be in guilt. It's not going to be in shame. He took your, your guilt, even though he was never guilty himself, but it's been paid for. It's been dealt with. It's been, it's been buried and done away with. The price has been paid. And when he returns, it's going to be in glory and honor. And that is what he has for you as well if you have joined yourself to him in faith. You're united with him in, in his destiny as well. This is the good news that we get to offer you. Not just pretending that sin doesn't matter, but that we have a Savior that has dealt with sin in this type of a way, and he offers you so much. And may he be glorified for all of this. And I pray that you will turn to him and embrace the only one that can deal with your sin and your shame. So what's the main reason this account's in the Bible? I think there's many. And some will point out, well, this talks about uh, the Canaanites and what would happen later on, and it does, and that's a part of it. But when I look at this, I think a huge reason why this is in Scripture is because it is to remind us that the flood did not solve humanity's sin problem. That it wasn't like, you know, something goes bad with your computer or your phone and you can do a, you know, a hard, you know, shutdown and reset. Now it works again. The reset here didn't work with humanity. The virus of sin was still there. And we saw it not only in, in Noah's descendants, but in righteous Noah himself. He was called righteous. He was a man of faith, but he, was, he wasn't perfect he needed a savior too. He needed one that would come one day and die on the cross for his sins as well. And so Noah is in heaven. We know that. He's, he's recorded in Hebrews 11 in the book of faith. And ultimately, it's because Jesus Christ died on the cross for his sins. And looking ahead, in whatever way he knew that he was trusting in the, the savior that would come. Are you trusting in the savior that would come? God's judgment here in the flood didn't solve the problem. As you go through the Old Testament and you get the, the Mosaic law code, that's not going to fix the problem. You keep going in the Old Testament and say, well, we need a, we need a king. You know, this, a, a king, the right politics, that is not going to solve the problem. Later on, the Pharisees say, we need to be even more stringent about obeying the law and we need to be even make up some of our own. That doesn't work. You need the God-man the sinless Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and there is no other way. Without him, we are in our sin, and we are in our shame and condemnation. But I tell you the good news, and I implore you to turn to Jesus Christ, and you can walk out of here in faith with your sin, your shame, your guilt taken away because Jesus took it for you already on the cross and did away with it. And we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's what we are remembering together. That's what he did. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. Lord, as we think about this passage, it reminds us of the sin that we have in our heart. We don't pretend to be sinless, Lord. We don't pretend to be perfect, better than other people, Lord. But through Christ, 
We can be forgiven, and we are forgiven if we have trusted Christ as Savior. Lord, I pray for anyone here that does not know Jesus Christ, does not have that, uh, also that assurance of that, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would help them believe the promises of Scripture, and that they would be saved. And the joy of knowing that their guilt is taken away, not just masked, but taken away because of Jesus Christ, because his sacrifice in the place of sinners. Lord, help us to cling to you every day because we still have the rem- in this life the remains of sin in our life that can easily lead us astray. Help us to cling to you so that we don't make decisions that will lead us to bad places, but help us to seek to glorify you in all things. In the name of the one in Scripture who is perfect, who is righteous, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.